0: If you had to pick a short list of the most memorable Bible verses, there would be some that we would all shout out and we'd know. Some like John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We were taught that from a young age. We've hidden it in our hearts, and we've known it now for a lifetime. It might be a verse um, like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My dad, he shared with me his favorite this morning, Proverbs 16, 2. All the ways of man are clean in his own eye, but the Lord knows the heart. These are verses that we have hidden in our hearts as we walk the Christian life, as we seek to cling on to the cross, to know the Lord and follow him in all of our ways. However, there is one particular verse that you Don't have to be associated with a church. You could be outside of Christianity altogether, and they might not know it chapter and verse, but they know it in their hearts. It's judge not. Don't judge me. Judge not lest you be judged. People will use this verse to throw it back in your face. We've seen politicians or celebrities use it as they've gotten caught in a scandal to use this verse to block uh, the darts of conviction and change. They use this verse to shield against it. There is no group more judgmental than a group of men watching another man try and back up a trailer in a tight spot. <laughs> They're watching. ah, cutting it too sharp. Ah, he's got to pull forward again. I, I wouldn't have done it that way, you know? There's no group more judgmental than those group of men. This verse sticks out as a go-to to deflect instruction and seeing. So today, how are we to take these words? When we hear this instruction from Jesus, how are we to rightly respond to get past the wall of defense to lovingly correct a brother? Or is it simply to be, Jesus said, don't judge, so we shouldn't cast judgment, and so the Lord will take care of it, and I really don't need to say anything to a brother, we'll just let it go? What are we supposed to do? How should we respond uh, to this passage? If you have your Bible with, with you, I encourage you to open up to the gospel according to Matthew chapter 7. We are in the home stretch. Uh, so, uh, we're going to be in chapter 7, verses 1 through 12 today. But before we do that, to help us understand this passage, I want us to refocus our mind of where we have been. Last week, we saw that our in, the last imperative from Jesus was to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is instructing a large group of people who have had a radical experience with Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has a group of people who has sealed their sickness, he's cast out their disease, he's cast out demons, and now Jesus sits to teach them. There's a group of ragtag men from fishermen, tax collectors, outcasts. They come from all backgrounds of life. And Jesus is announcing the kingdom of God to them. It's not just the religious it's not just the elite, but to the brokenhearted, the captives, the one who are in great need. And these are the ones who are following Jesus, and he is instructing them on what it means to be in the kingdom of God, to be disciples of his kingdom. So when we get to this passage today, judge not, we must recognize that Jesus is no fool. He isn't in over his head with a group of ragtag individuals who are a little rough around the edges. These are exactly the people he is called to invite into the kingdom of God. It's like the parable of the master who's preparing the banquet, and he sends his servant out to invite people to come into the banquet. And all of these people start coming up with excuses, like, well, I've, I've got to be married, and I've got to tend to my land. You fill in the blank. The servant comes back to the master and says, everybody's giving me an excuse. And he says, go back out and call out whoever will come. And who comes? The brokenhearted. The This is Jesus. He's calling those to the banquet table of the kingdom of God. And if you are a follower of Jesus, in some ways, we have all had similar experiences with this group of people in Matthew chapter 4. We have had a radical experience where we have seen our sinfulness, our great need before a holy and righteous God, and His love and grace has met us in a place of great need. Jesus radically changes lives. To make those who were once dead in sins alive to Him, but He's not done here. He's now instructing them and us on how to live in the kingdom now. Jesus knows that we tend to make judgments on people based on how they look, how they sound, how they act, how they smell. Jesus knows that we judge people based off of our pride. Jesus knows that we base people, we judge people based off based off of our prejudices, how we've been raised, how we've been taught to see through our cultural lenses at other people, Jesus knows that we have the tendency to view our righteousness as superior, our theological convictions as better, and our tribes as superior. Jesus knows that when people are in sin, we have a tendency to write them off. That's just who they are. They can't be better. Can they be better? Leave your sin. They can't do it. I'll just leave them off. I'll write them off. So when we approach this passage today, we need to see that Jesus is placing this perfectly within his sermon and how we view others. Matt Smithhurst says this, self-righteousness is the art of always being bothered more by someone else's sin than our own. Self-righteousness is the art of always being bothered by someone else's sin more than our own. So to understand this passage rightly, we must first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, you'll notice that we're taking a large section of Scripture. Your headings in your paragraph might only go verses 1 through 6, but we're going through verses 12 today, and there's a reason for that. There are paragraph breaks in our Bibles that can help us read our Bibles better, It helps us instruct us to understand what's going on. But sometimes they can cloud our understanding. So the headings in your Bible might be something like, judge not, ask and you'll receive, and the golden rule. And this might make us think that these are three separate teachings from Jesus. But verses 1 through 12 is one teaching from Jesus with multiple principles. Notice how Jesus begins and ends this section. He begins by saying, the measure that you use To judge someone will be used for you, and then he concludes with, so whatever you wish others would do for you, do also for them. All right, so now that we have all of that in our minds, preloaded, let's read our passage this morning, starting in verse 1. I'm going to invite you to stand this morning as we read. It says this, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be used to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can, you see, how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for him bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good th- gifts to your children. How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray real quickly before we continue. Jesus, I pray uh, that this morning your word convict us and challenge us. That we help. That you help us to see. Um, how you are instructing us in this passage. Jesus, I pray that you make our hearts uh, receptive and our ears ready to hear. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So the first question we might ask, judge not that you might be judged. Does Jesus forbid all judging of any kind? Is Jesus throwing out judging altogether? Well, quite simply, no. I mean, we see in this passage even that Jesus is about to call some groups dogs and pigs. Jesus is not forbidding judgment. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says that the church is to judge disputes between members of the body. Matthew 18, it shows how we are to confront sinning brothers and sisters. We are given instructions on how to carefully evaluate and judge a man's character before promoting him to leadership. Jesus is not prohibiting all forms of judgment or to turn a blind eye to sin. J.C. Ryle sums it up this way. What he says is, What our Lord means to condemn is a fault-finding spirit, a readiness to blame others for trifling offenses or matters of indifference, a habit of passing rash and hasty judgments, a disposition to magnify the errors and infirmities of our neighbors and make the worst of them. So then what is Jesus instructing us to do? For us to know what Jesus is instructing us to do in this judge not passage, we must start with the end. What's the end goal of this passage? If you have, um, I've had the privilege of counseling a few uh, through either marriage counseling or just counseling in general, and the first time that we all sit down together, the first thing that we'll do is we'll ask this question, what do you want your spouse or your friend to say about you when you die? It's a morbid way to start, maybe. But what it helps us to do is recognize what our true goals in life are. Every time we start off this way, you know what everyone puts? They want their spouse or their friend to say that I was kind, that I was loving, that I was generous, that I gave of my time. When they called, I helped. This is what people want to be said of them. It's not that I ran a successful business, I had a lot of money, everybody respected me. That's not what they want. What they want is to be known for being kind, loving, generous, and gracious. And when we start with the end, it helps us to see clearly our problems today. What causes arguments among you and division among you? Is it because you ask and you do not have what James will say? What causes arguments and divisions among us? And how can we rightly see to get past that? We must start with the end. So what's the end goal of this passage with Jesus? Look at verse 5. It says this. First, take out the log of your own eye. Then you will see clearly, just take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is not saying, one dude has a speck, you have a log, just forget about it. Deal with your own self. The goal of this passage is to restore a brother. The goal of this passage is to see so clearly that we are able to help our brother, even with a speck of sawdust in their eye. The goal is restoration. And this has been the goal of the kingdom. The goal of the kingdom of God is to be grace given out by the meek, the poor in spirit, the one who has a healthy eye to restore the one in error to a better way of life. The kingdom of God, Isaiah 61, Jesus sees his mission as loosening the chains of brokenness and bondage. So the question then is for us to judge rightly, how do we become a restorative community, a group of people that casts right judgments, that helps to restore a brother to a community. The first thing we see is to take the log out of our own eye. To do this, we must have a correct view of ourselves. One of my favorite books, I read it in college. I think I have the quote on the back of, um, of the sermon notes here. It absolutely changed the way that I started thinking about God and processing things. I'd gone through a difficult season of life, and this book really helped me out. It's by Tim Keller. It's The Reason for God in the Age of Skepticism. And he says this about gospel humility. He says this, The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet, I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and a deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. Humility is not thinking more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. It's to put the needs of others before ourselves. Let us preach grace until humility starts to grow within us. There are plenty of reasons people may feel apprehension to come into a church on Sunday. There are reasons every Sunday, week in and week out, people feel like they should not come into church on Sunday, or maybe even associate with Christians. Maybe it's the shame of sin. Maybe it's anger to a previous church. Maybe it was an overzealous religious parent. Whatever the case may be, may it never be said of us that the reason they don't come to Alpine is because we make them feel shame and apprehension because of their sin, because of our attitudes and our dispositions before them. May it never be said of us that we make someone feel shameful because of our attitudes towards them. James will say this about uh, the brother that comes in in a high position and the brother that comes into a low position, where we give this man the seat of honor at our gathering, and to the other man, we just kind of push off to the side. Now, that is not really indicative of our culture. Like, we could look across our room, and we'd see everybody seems to be pretty much in the same economic landscape, but how is it that we give people seats of honor in our congregation today? Is it not how we interact with each other on a Sunday morning? Do we not float to those who make us comfortable and only have conversations with those people? Do we seek out the ones that sit in the back that don't have much to say, that maybe miss a Sunday or two? Are we encouraging those who are frequently in and out? Are we encouraging those that we know are going through a tough season of life? Are we looking down on that brother because they have nothing to offer us at that time and it requires me to give something? But the brother in the high position is the one that's just easy to have a conversation with, the one that's going to celebrate me and we'll have an easy conversation and move on. How are we to approach those? How are we to make those feel welcome in our gathering? The words of the gospel are tough. And I'm not saying that we undermine people's sin or that we push past people's sin. We are sinners, a key word being we. May we never preach a gospel that leaves anyone from the pastor to a member to a visitor to any person we can imagine. May we never preach a gospel that doesn't include all of us in great sin and all of us in need of a Savior. But we must take the log out of our own eyes. We must recognize our log. We must recognize our need. All you need to receive grace from Jesus is your need. Nothing else. No work, no merit, no prerequisite. Only your need. Go to him and him alone with your need. Then deal with your need. Look so deeply into the gospel of grace that it produces a great humility and confidence, as Keller says. When we understand our need, our great and desperate need for mercy, then we become a community of mercy. So, how do we become a restorative community of the kingdom? First, we take the log out of our own eye, which, second, fosters a deep humility. A posture of humility helps us to see clearly. And notice this theme is still carrying out through the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus' ability for us to be seen, to seek, to see clearly. When we help a brother, this is the goal, to restore him. To do this, we must see clearly. But second, when we do see clearly, we might realize that we didn't see clearly before. And we might come to a different understanding of our brother in need in a different way to help them out, every person in this room is a combination of different hurts, sins, injustices, pains, wrongs that have been done to them, and wrongs that they have done. Every person in this room has a limited understanding. We don't see clearly all the time. Every person in this room is never perfectly humble. And all of this, all of our hurt and experience, make us into the person that we are today. We react in various ways. When someone acts harshly or coldly, it's too simplistic to say, ah, that's just their sin nature. They need to repent of their sin of anger. Our lives, every sin is like an onion. As, as we start peeling back, we see deeper and deeper rooted sins that we've held on that have rooted in our heart. Humans are incredibly complex beings with complex emotions, hurts, and struggles, and a posture of humility helps us to do the hard work with people. This week at VBS, we had 117 kids registered, 117 kids registered for our VBS. Now, I think our highest day, we had around 102 or 103 kids. Now, God bless them, Sydney and Paige had the largest group of pre-K-4 and pre-K-5 kids. Uh, they had about 40 in that class, and it is utter chaos. Uh, we have one five-year-old in our house, and that's chaotic. But you put 40 of them in the same room, and you get them hyped up. You start getting, talking about pies in the face and all of that. They just go absolutely bananas. So one day, I think it was uh, Wednesday, Tuesday or Wednesday, um, it was just those two with that group. So I said, I'll come help you follow this group around for the day. And so when we got to the gym, uh, Sydney and I, we split up the groups. She took the girls. I took the boys. We're going to go do a bathroom break before we go up um, to the lesson. And so I went into drill sergeant mode. Like, I put the kids up against the wall. Do you have to pee? No, sit down. You have to pee. Stand up. Pee, sit down. Pee, stand up. All right, you, 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 you. Go. You, you, you. Sit. All right, we're going to get them in, out, in, out. And then finally, we got them all done, lined back up, going up the stairs. And there's this one kid. He stops. He says, I can't go upstairs. I'm like, what are you talking about? You can't go upstairs. We're going upstairs to the lesson. You gotta go upstairs. I I can't. He says, my lips bleeding. I said, it's gonna be okay. It's not a big deal. It's just a little bit of blood. It's it's gonna be fine. Let's go upstairs. He goes, No, no, I need a napkin. I need I need something to cover it. Okay, fine. Let's go. And so we go into the bathroom. There's no napkins, there's just toilet paper. We get the toilet paper in the water. We try it. Doesn't work. It's not satisfactory for him. So then we go to the kitchen. We finally find the napkin. We get the napkin. We clean it off. We get up to the stairs. And here I am, frustrated, angry, let's move, let's go. And he stops again. And he says, I cannot go up the stairs. I said, what's the matter? And he said, I'm afraid if the kids see my cut that they'll make fun of me. He said, I don't want them to stare at me funny. (sighs) I mean, how does that not melt your heart? And so immediately I got down on my knee and I looked at him and said, buddy, And if anybody says anything to you about that cut on your lip, I want you to come to me. And say we're not going to let that happen. I said, there's nothing to be embarrassed about, buddy. What was I doing in that moment, in a simple moment with a kid? I was prejudging the child. You're being lazy. You're not listening. Let's move. Let's go. What is deep inside his heart that said he is afraid? He's terrified that his friends are going to judge him. And here's a five-year-old that realizes his difference before others. How much more are people that have lived life 30, 40, 50, 60 years, 70, 80 years with all of their sin, shame, jumbled up in there. They don't want to come into church. They don't want people to see who they are. If you see me for who I truly are, you won't want me. You won't accept me. Jesus says, the same measure you use to judge that person is the same measure I will use to judge you. How are we to operate by a restorative community? It's through mercy. It's through mercy. And this requires us to take the log out of my own eye to see this child as being lazy, dismissive, not listening. I had to take the log out of my own eye to help deal with the speck of disobedience from this child. It's something as simple as that. But how much more as adults do we have pain and sin that has jumbled up and distorts our view. The posture of humility helps us to see clearly. The posture of humility helps us to seek understanding. Judgment is easy. Compassion and mercy take work. And this is the work of the kingdom. If you want to live a gospel-centered life, if you want to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, be compassionate Be merciful. Get in the weeds and the muck and the mire of other people's sinfulness and their deal and their harsh reactions. Because when we are compassionate and merciful and we show them the love and grace of Jesus, we point them to the cross. This is the work of the gospel. The world does not need more cynics. If you're cynical about everything, you're eventually right about something. The world doesn't need more critics. It does no good to get angry at the world and just spout out all of its ills 24-7. I can't believe this group of people reacts this way. I can't believe they did it this way. We don't need more critics or cynics. What we need, what changes, what provides deep, lasting change within the kingdom are relationships that seek mercy and forgiveness. To seek to keep the peace, to seek, seek to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. To Be merciful to be the peacemaker. One of the best questions um, that I've learned to ask over many trial and error, and this isn't to say that I figured it out, and this isn't uh, to toot my own horn by, by anything, but as I've spoken, I've, as I've been a pastor, and I've counseled or just spoken with people that are dealing with brokenness, sin, and shame, And even dealing with people that have dealt with brokenness, sin, and shame, and they're in the wrong, and they know they're in the wrong. The first question that is one of the best questions I feel like I've learned to ask is to simply ask, are you okay? Are you okay? Like I realize people are saying this about you. I realize this is happening in your life right now. But are, are you okay? How are you dealing with this? Because when people know that you are seeking to understand them, their walls come down. When we are seeking to understand and not seeking to cast judgment, people will receive the mercy that we have to offer. The purpose of humility, the posture of humility helps us to see clearly. It helps us to seek understanding. And the purpose of this text is to help a brother. We do this by having honest conversations of who we are, sinful, in need of grace, by Jesus We do this by having a posture of humility. Humility helps us to see clearly. Humility helps us to understand. And that's the goal. Notice this. Jesus doesn't expect Christian community to be perfect. He doesn't expect Christian community to be perfect. He assumes in this passage both people will do wrong and that will give rise to tensions, to problems of relationship, Where forgiveness is an issue, we need to deal with it. Jesus doesn't expect Christian community to be perfect, but he does expect Christian community to be merciful and forgiving. Perfection will come one day when Jesus comes back. We are all in the process of sanctification. We are all in the process of working out our sins and looking to our Savior. Jesus doesn't expect Christian community to be perfect, but he expects it to be merciful and forgiving. There are those, however... That claim to follow Christ. They may have seminary degrees, they may be pastors of churches, you name it. They may, might not be, but they deliver truth harshly. To seek correction without mercy is to seek your own kingdom. To seek correction without mercy is to seek your own kingdom. To say, I know what's right, I'm judging this situation rightly, they say the truth in anger. This passage does not give us the license to go hitting people over the head with Scripture. Even though something might be right theologically, doesn't mean that it's beneficial spiritually. You can be right and mean. You can be right and insensitive. You can be right and careless. You can be right and harmful. There are times to be stern. There are times to let the truth hit. But without love, it's dangerous. Without a posture of mercy, it's dangerous. I think of Jesus when thinking about this, about uh, things might be right theologically, but not necessarily beneficial spiritually. I think of Jesus in John 16, where he's talking to his disciples, and he's giving them the last instructions about what's to happen. What's more important than the world in the world than Jesus' words, right? And if Jesus has something to say, say it. Like, I want to hear it. Like, how often do we want Jesus to speak verbally to us now? Let me hear what you have to say. Jesus is giving instruction to his disciples. And he says this in 1612. He says, I have much more to say to you, but it's more now than you can bear. See the mercy of Jesus. He has a lot to say to them, but it's much more than they can bear in this moment. Husbands or wives, has your spouse ever come home defeated and hurting, like really hurting? They're really in a vulnerable moment where they might be saying something like, I can't do anything right, Uh, just raising kids is tough, everything is going wrong. In that moment, would it be good for you to pull out your pocketbook and say, well, you know what? I've actually noticed those tendencies of you, and I have a few more that I need to correct you on. Are you right? That might be but is it beneficial in that moment is there a time and a place to say truth that will be heard jesus says you have i have much more to say to you it's more than you can bear and then he promises to send the spirit people might not reject the gospel people might not be rejecting the gospel they might simply be rejecting us if we're arrogant dismissive quarrelsome we must be careful that we are not hostile in our attitudes our attitudes must be one with mercy to seek correction without mercy is not seeking the kingdom of god however there is a flip side we read this passage and we might say something like well i don't want to be too judgy and i don't want to hurt someone's feelings and you know they'll figure it out they have a friend that's kind of walking with them in this so i'm just going to step back i'm not going to say anything and you know, this might be beneficial for them, but it might hurt. I don't know. What should I do? The flip side of this is this. To avoid correction in the name of mercy is to avoid the kingdom of God. To avoid correction in the name of mercy is to avoid the kingdom of God. Do you see that both? Both can miss the true seeking of the kingdom. To seek correction without mercy And to avoid correction in the name of mercy, both miss the ideals of the kingdom. We are to seek correction with mercy. And this is hard. It is hard to know how to interact and deal with people that have a lot of problems or a lot of baggage. It takes wisdom, patience, and we receive help from the Holy Spirit. Notice how Jesus just goes to, it fits so perfectly, Verse 7 Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receive. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also for them. Notice the ascending urgency. You ask, you seek, and then you knock. The Father, Jesus, and the Spirit are in the business of his kingdom advancing. They are in the business of restoring relationships to the gospel and his grace. They want the gospel proclaimed and for people to repent and believe. It is hard to be merciful. It is hard to know What to do and to do it rightly. What do we do? We ask for wisdom. We ask for wisdom. We ask, we seek, we knock. We have a good Father that will give generously to us as we seek to restore relationships and as we seek to remove the log out of our own eye. Now, I did not intend to skip verse six here. Uh, You might have noticed that because it's such an odd verse, isn't it? Don't throw what is sacred to dogs or pearls to pigs. This is a difficult passage for us to understand, and scholars have at least eight different ways or more that this passage could be interpreted, and they can all come to different conclusions. And I'm not going to pretend that after a week and a half of study, I've come to the right one, like I know the best one here. But I'm going to offer what I think is the closest, what I think is the best, and maybe we could have a conversation with this later if you think it's something different. Uh, But as we think about this, the Greek word here for dog is not the domesticated kind, but the one that rummages through the city. It's considered unclean. And it's the same with pigs. We know this. So Jesus is most likely referring to wicked people who will despise and mock the Christian message. There are those that don't want help and refuse help. Not everyone is grateful for correction. Consider the proverb Do not rebuke the mockers, or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise, and they will love you. So, there's this idea maybe uh, that what Jesus is referring to uh, is that there are brothers in the kingdom that we need to seek restorative conversations with. There are those outside of the kingdom that are not going to hear what you have to say. However, we can't assume that Jesus is just throwing them out the baby with the bathwater. Because Jesus is all about proclaiming the gospel. This does not contradict Jesus and the Great Commission. The words that Jesus often spoke, the harshest words to, are the ones that assumed their righteousness was the greatest. Who Jesus is referring to are those who have had ample opportunity to hear the gospel and have rejected it. They continue to argue in, the, in debate. And this makes sense to me. There is a change in audience from brother to someone outside of the kingdom. But it does not mean that we neglect the Great Commission. Consider Paul. He kind of follows, I think, the same line of thinking in Acts 13. He says, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. And when the Jews incited the city leaders to drive them out, they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went on to Aconium. Paul is speaking about those who have rejected the gospel, but notice why they rejected it. They rejected it because they didn't believe that they were worthy. Now that's, that's shocking to me. There are two types of people that sit themselves on the throne in judgment. Those who look down and judge others because they believe that their righteousness is better than those. But there's also the ones that sit in a posture that says, I'm not worthy. How could the Lord ever love me? I I, I can't go to church. I'm not good enough. I can't do that. I'm not good enough. Do you realize in that posture, it seems like humility, but it's a fake humility? What you are doing is you're removing God from his throne. You are sitting in the place of judgment and judging yourself. Jesus knows everything about us. He knows everything we've done. He's known every dark thought. He's known every evil deed done in secret. He sees it all. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. And you know what he does? He comes for you. He's come not to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. Let us not be the one that sits on the throne and condemns ourselves outside of his mercy. Here's an important distinction Jesus is making. A dog or a pig in this passage is not a brother or sister in Christ Jesus that is slow in the restorative process. Living a gospel kingdom life is difficult. When we approach a brother in sin, oftentimes the first thing that comes up is a wall. Jesus is not saying, well, he's a pig, throw your pearls and leave on. No, we are to work at restoring brothers and sisters in Christ. This takes time, wisdom, and patience. Jesus is not saying that this is a dog or a pig. I believe Jesus is saying those that are outside of the kingdom, who have had ample opportunity to respond to the gospel and still despise it, don't continue to engage in endless circular arguments to rebuke a mocker, they will hate you and I believe he's saying to engage an unbeliever and a believer well takes wisdom that we don't have but wisdom we can receive there's one critical thing in this passage that we must not forget as we close there is one who judges and he judges rightly and as we help to remove the speck from our own brother's eye we must remember we need help removing the log From ours, and this is why we gather as a community. We recognize our collective need for Jesus. We're about to all do it as we come up to the table. We are saying that my life is not worthy, but Jesus' life is, and I need His to cover mine. Coming before a judge can sound terrifying, but over and over again, the scriptures, Jesus paints this picture of the loving, gracious Father running to meet His rebellious Son to restore him to the family and invite him to the table. Now, I've waited to share this video until the end because I knew once I showed it, uh, we'd all probably lose it. At least Guy and I would. I know that Guy and I are both criers here. Uh, But I want to show you this video because I think that it helps to illustrate this purpose. And I got one more point to make after this video plays. Dustin, could you play? Carol has been overseas, but he is home now. And we were there when his son got the big surprise. Yeah, we ran the story initially on Friday, but on Veterans Day, we wanted to run it again, partly because it is so special and partly because well, we could just run one of these every day and, yeah, we and, sure and watch could. it over and over again. Here's News force Nigel Robertson with the surprise. Just look at him. Josh Carroll, an 8th grader at Lead Academy in Greenville, has no idea what is about to happen. His mother, however, does. Jamon Williams. You see, Josh thinks he is just at another end of the nine-weeks awards program, but what he doesn't know is just outside the cafeteria. Yeah, we're going to try to pull it off. He thinks I'm coming home in about three weeks. Yep, his dad, Lieutenant Paul Carroll, is home from Afghanistan. Mom and the school staff planned the whole surprise. Today we also want to pay honor and tribute to another type of service. Now the moment is just seconds away. The final award is for service to your country. Josh and his mom are called up in front of the whole school. Now, just watch and listen to what happens next. Please make welcome back home, 1st Lieutenant. Now imagine in that moment when the son is going to run into his father's arms. A teacher jumps in and says, wait, 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 wait. I need you to understand that while you were gone, your son was dismissive and disruptive in my class. That his grades have failed, he's caused trouble, and you need to discipline him in this moment. This is what Jesus is saying. That the mercy of the father When you see your great need and sin, you run to the Father and let us not be people that jump in the way of receiving the mercy from God. We can disrupt the mercy of Jesus in the gospel proclaiming when we put on unnecessary weights and measures for them to receive grace. The call for us to the gospel is to run to the Father. The call for us is to embrace him. Why do moments like these Uh, make us tear up and well up with pride. God, why does Homeward Bound make us cry when the dogs come over the field, of the hill, and they're reunited with the family? It's because I believe this. Scripture says that he has written eternity on our hearts. Scripture says that one day he's making all things new. And when we see images like this, we get a taste because it's been wired in our hearts of this day when all things are going to be made new. Imagine the day... When you see Jesus, imagine that day, and you get to run and embrace him, and Jesus is all of the mercy and love that you could ever imagine and more. He embraces you, and he says, My son, oh, how I love you. How dare us be a community that blocks people from seeing that love and that mercy from Jesus? I want to end with this line of a hymn. Come, you weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Come, you sinners, poor, needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. It's incredibly difficult to live lives of mercy and forgiveness, because it requires something out of all of us. But when we look to Jesus, and we see that our needs are met in him, we see that we live in the kingdom of God, where the economy is mercy, and the currency is grace. And in this kingdom, those will never run out. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you help us to see uh, the great love that you have for us, but not just the great love that you have for us, the great love that you have for all of us, and that that change and dictate how we approach a brother uh, that has strayed in sin. Father, help us to remove this pillar that is in our eyes. Father, help us to see ourselves rightly with humility so that we can approach a brother in grace to help them see you clearly. Jesus, as we close our service today, I pray that in our hearts, uh, we make much of you, that we come to the table freely. Uh, by your grace, it's been extended to us. And in Jesus' name I pray.